there would be no redemption of man and there would be no Christianity. There are some benefits of being surrounded by God's love and to experience God's love. If we turn to John 14, 21, I'm not going to read the scripture. I think Brian will put it up on the screen. But basically it says that Jesus will love you and will manifest himself to you. That's one of the benefits of God's love. And there's several. I only, I only have three of them. The second one is in verse 23 of the same chapter. The Father and Jesus will make their abode with you. And the third one is in John 16, 13. The Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. Now, I'm sure everyone here today believes these scriptures. They're part of our theology, part of our belief system. But there's something more than believing these scriptures. It's more important to experience these scriptures and to be actively engaged in the events described by these scriptures. It's more important that you are aware and perceive that Jesus is manifesting himself to you. Because as we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that will help us see, feel, and know that we are loved by Christ and God the Father. When, when it says the Father and Jesus will make their abode with you, if we put that in human terms, a young man and a young woman decide they're going to get married and they're going to live together. The first couple weeks, it's the honeymoon. Everything's great. And a little while later, it's, I didn't know he did that. I didn't. It made, it, reality sets in. And you get to know someone very intimately when you start to live with them and move into their house. But you know, that's not what he's saying here. Jesus isn't moving into your house with you. He's moving into the temple of God, which is your body. He is in you, which is infinitely more personal and infinitely more uh, revealing. God the Father and the Son wants for you is not obtained by merely studying scriptures. Okay? If that were true, then all of us guys can move to the monastery, all you guys can go to the convent, and we can spend every day studying, praying, fasting. No. The rest of the scriptures indicate that we must be engaged and active. The Great Commission the statements on witnessing, making converts, giving an answer for the faith that is within you. The gifts of 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians 4. And the statement about being in the world but not part of the world all demand that we be engaged. And it is through that engagement 
that love is perfected, perfected in us. Now, love is a two-way street. And man is admonished to love God. And in Luke 10, 27, that we love the Lord with all of our heart, our, our mind, our soul, and our strength. That's a tall order. Very tall order. And in Philippians 2, 2, Paul writes, Fulfill you my joy, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now we know that we receive the Holy Spirit with the laying on of the hands, and this is an earnest of the Spirit, which is essential for our relationship with God, and it's our essential for us experiencing the items that I've already mentioned. And that is what facilitates our relationship with God. Now, we are somewhat imperfect in our current status, in the love that we possess and that we apply. We all have shortcomings, and the, the shortcomings are many. They can be related to heredity, our environment, our emotions, our health, distractions from society, wrong education and priorities, unintended consequences, just the complexity of life can divert us from our focus and what we need to be focused upon. I could, the, the, the number of causes are insurmountable. I couldn't really begin to scratch the surface of all of them. But I want to explore a couple of them because I'm leading to something. The first distraction from God that I've listed is society in general, which can imprint itself upon you, imprint its values upon you without you even knowing it. And you will succumb to it and act out to their values and their goals and of their objectives and do things in their manners. Um, the obvious one here, if you want an example, are physical goods. You know, if you do not possess certain physical goods, our society can make you feel inferior, or you don't measure up, or you don't fit in. It's especially children are, and young teens are particularly vulnerable to that. You know, um, there was a fellow on TV not too many weeks ago. He said, I, I came home from the TV studio, and I, I walked in, and my young daughter was there, and she says, Dad, I need a new cell phone. Actually, she didn't say, I need, I need a new one. I need another cell phone. And the guy says, I said to her, well, what do you mean? You've got a cell phone. Is it broken? And she says, no, it's not broken, but it's black. It's black. Well, what's wrong with a cell phone being black? It doesn't match my pink dress. You see, cell phones have been elevated to a fashion statement now. Okay? Not to mention the fact that probably if you're a child and you don't have a cell phone, you probably don't fit in. But it goes into the adult realm also. You know, if we all lived in the grass shacks, 12 foot by 12 foot, or maybe some of us have, would have a 30 by 30, and we have no heating, ventilating, and air conditioning, and no cars, 
We wouldn't want that 12,000 square foot house on a $5 million estate. We'd not even dream about it. Of course, worse is actively go out and try to pursue that. But if we do a reality check on what really that means to us, can you really imagine what it would be like to come home to a 12,000 square foot mansion or castle and you come to your home and you come through the front door. Hello. <laughs> and nobody answers you. And you, where's the wife? Where's the, so you get out your cell phone and you call your wife up on the cell phone. Honey, I'm home, where are you at? I'm in the eighth building, bedroom in the third floor overlooking the sunken garden. Oh, okay. are the kids with you? No. Um, I think Susie is in, in the entertainment room, or she might be in the music room. Okay, and, and, and Mikey, where's Mikey? I don't know, he's supposed to go to Dennis and he's hiding. <laughs> so the reality of some of the things that we dream about and hope for aren't necessarily as good as they're made out to be. Another cause, the second one that I've identified, is misdirected theology. There are many open-ended statements in the Bible that are non-exact, but men have this way about them of having to concretize and put in very specific meanings to things that are not exactly described specifically in the scriptures, and they will put requirements then upon those. Requirements that you can't talk to somebody, you can't be a member of your church, you can't attend their services, and on and on it goes, all based upon their bigoted interpretation and understanding, which they elevate to a higher plane, when in fact the scriptures don't validate that. Um, some of the other things that are done, interrogation of your intellectual understanding before baptism, or if you don't believe in the Trinity, you can't be a Christian. And it's interesting, going back to the, the item I just mentioned before that, the interrogation of your intellectual understanding, because if we look at about 33 AD, 30 to 33 AD, somewhere is in there, Jesus started his work about 27 AD. So we're looking at after the death of Christ. The early, earliest books in the Bible are written about 45 to 50 AD. So you got 12 years in there. There was no Bible. There, where did they get their intellectual understanding? To what level? The Trinity doctrine did not exist. When, when you have 120 disciples that are going to baptize 3,000 people in one day, what kind of interrogation do you give each member or potential member? And then there's scholarship. Scholarship. You see, there's a group that, oh, I don't know, a decade or two ago, came out and made the statement that we are no longer going to use the Bible, but we are going to use scholars for the source of our doctrines. Well, that's interesting. What did we say back here on that very, very first, first John 16, and the spirit of truth, 
will lead you into all truth. A scholar doesn't even have to have the spirit of truth. This theology may be all wrong. So, when Jesus came on the scene, he fought against the religious system and the scholars of the day in Judah. They weren't part of what God did through Jesus. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were in opposition to it. And it's interesting today, there's one congregation out there that are telling their followers not to marry, not to have children, because the end time is very near. Some of you probably have heard that in the past. While simultaneously, those same leaders are spending multi-million dollars on purchasing properties and building a college campus. It'll be a year before the buildings are done, and it'll be four years before the first graduating class comes on the scene. So we're looking five years out. But yet, no, don't get married and don't have kids because the end time is too close. It seems to me a better use of those monies would be to spend, the, spend them on getting a last-minute message to a dying world would be more significant. Anyway, that's my opinion. Cause three are selfish prayers. Selfish prayers that disconnect us from the love of God. If, if we are always going to God, oh God, please give me this, give me that. I gotta have it, I, I need this. And you know, at what point does God say, you know, I can give you this, but I'm not a magic genie. You know, you just know, every time you get in trouble, you come to me, you know. And perhaps God sat in the mirror and says, you know, it's been quite a number of years I've been going through this with you. What's in it for me? What's in it for me, God? If I give you this, is it going to improve our love relationship? So, perhaps we should improve our relationship with God by when we pray, connect it with something that God wants us to be doing. I'm going to have a little illustration of that a little later. I forgot to stop, start my stopwatch correctly, so I don't know really where I'm at. I know I'm 10 minutes and 25 seconds in, at least. Perhaps our prayers and our requests to God should be larger in scope. And we should look more in depth at the needs and attach needs to opportunities. Opportunities to learn about God, wherein Jesus can manifest himself to us. And we can grow in confidence in God because of this living, dynamic relationship that we have. And we can improve and expand our understanding of God in our personal relationship and learn what he will do or will not do, perhaps, for us. What he expects you to do. That is being engaged. All to perfect the love and spiritual growth. I was going to read some lyrics that the praise and worship team, a song that the praise and worship team is practicing. The lyrics are really great. I, I, I failed to get the music for that and bring up the lyrics. But it's called A City on a Hill. And it goes through how man criticizes man. And it's a very good example because it says how the, the old man 
don't respect the young men and say, the old men think we have the wisdom, the young men, they're foolish and they don't. And it goes through several illustrations of that. And it's real easy, you know, to pull out the book and, and go to Psalms and Proverbs where it says wisdom comes with age and just grab that and latch onto it and forget what Paul said to Timothy, let no man despise your youth. See, so the applications, we have to be very aware of and have a, a good understanding of the situations that we're in. Now, the perfection of love, the pinnacle, the high watermark of spiritual growth is achieving perfect love. Without love, all of our other spiritual efforts are worthless. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 5. I'm going to turn there because I want to go through these scriptures. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels and have not love or charity, I am become a sounding bronze or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long, love is kind, love envious not, love vaunteth not itself, it's not puffed up. You see, he gets back, to, he talks a little bit here on the understanding in the midst of all mysteries and knowledge. That's some, what some of the scholars want you to believe. And they, they tear these things apart and in not allowing their understanding to come from God, they can run off the road. And if none of it's done in love anyway, if it's done for no other reason than to promote one's self, to promote one's self because I speak Greek, I speak Hebrew, I go through these things in detail. I can get a better understanding than what you little neophytes say. You see, because I understand this. The trouble is, the question, do you have the Spirit of God? And is he leading you into all truth? That's a bigger question than all the papers you can dig out or all the education that you want to lay on someone with uh, PhDs and whatever all those titles are that you get from the seminaries and the world's religious systems. God cares about the motives in your heart. There's an illustration, it's historic, it's well documented, by a big industrial, uh, big, I don't know what his size was. He was big in economic power, okay? During the time of the industrial revolution in this country, he was a large business tycoon in reality, he was, a, he was a business tyrant. He would go out and he would 
intentionally put other large industrialists and big, big business people out of business just so he could prove that he could do it. And that was the sole motivation behind it. After doing this behavior for a while, he became ostracized. No longer was he invited to large political events or large social events. They wanted nothing to do with him because in his attacking, he went out and attacked some good people and friends of the majority of, of the other tycoons. And so he was ostracized. So what did he do? He hired advisors and asked them, what should I do? So what did they tell him? Well, they, they told him of something that goes on in our society right today. He was told, make large donations to charities and make sure it is well publicized. You see, he doesn't care about the charities. He doesn't care about the work the charities are doing or the people that it helps. He's caring about only one thing, his own image. God cares about your heart. You see, his heart would not be correct with God with, with what he's doing. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about there. There are many characteristics, many different aspects, many different facets in, the, in, in love and the way love can manifest itself. Some of the obvious elements in a love relationship, confidence, trust, faith, hope, courage, fearlessness, devotion, sacrifice, to name a few. Hmm. Fearlessness? Fearlessness, a, a, a characteristic of love? Hmm. 1 John 4.18 1 John 4.18 Perfect love casts out fear. So fear is a gauge of your perfection in love. Of love. If at the end of the day, you take the time to reflect on the day's activities, and you look into the spiritual mirror, and evaluate and reflect upon, was this a profitable day for my love relationship with Jesus Christ? Did he reveal, manifest something to me today that I was unaware of? And what about his power? Because the Spirit is, is power. 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that the Spirit is power. How much power do you use? I didn't realize I did this. I was just reaching in my pocket earlier and I happened to have batteries in here. That's my backup power? No, no, it's not my backup power. I don't know why they're in my pocket, but they're there. Um, but you know, you could look at that as how much your batteries are drained down. How much are your batteries replenished? Because this power is what will motivate you in love. This power is what will be the tickler file, if you will, and will bring to mind when you're in a situation, will guide you through that problem, those events. It'll help to keep you in line with what Jesus and God the Father wants you to be doing. 
I've got a, a personal story. I mean, it happened decades ago, and it was just came to mind here a couple days ago here at the feast when I was talking with someone. Years ago, I was very much in love with a girl, and I wrote a song for her. Late, and that was like in the spring of the year. Later on, I was contacted about playing hymns at the Feast of Tabernacles and also doing a special music or two. And so I said, sure. And I thought that this song that I wrote for this girl was and still is one of the best songs I had ever written. And I wanted to do it at the Feast of Tabernacles. But there's a problem there, at least for me, at that time and day and age. I didn't write it to praise God. I wrote it to praise this girl that I was in love with. So is it right for me to take that song and perform it? Am I serving God in Christ, or am I serving myself to make a performance of this, what I think is this great song that I wrote? So. I went to God, and I said, God, I would like to play this song. I think it's a wonderful song, it's a beautiful song, but I don't know if it's, if it's right for me to write a song about a girl that I love, and then take it to church, and then and present it to the congregation, and they don't know that I really wrote it for a girl. You know, they may think I wrote it for God. Is that right to do that, and is that acceptable in your eyes. So I figure, I'm, and I told him, I'm not going to dial it into any of my special music, and if you want me to do it, you're going to have to make the opportunity. You're going to have to provide the opportunity. The prayer is an example of engagement. Engagement. So I went to the Feast of Tabernacles, and on it was kind of a special day because back in those days we had this uh, pretty famous television evangelist who was going to be speaking that day at that peace site. And about two minutes before service starts, the choir director, and I, and I was kind of surprised at this, he comes over to me, he says, Art, we're supposed to do special music today. The song we have we're not, really not ready for it. We're, we just haven't got it down. Do you have something you can play for special music? Sure do. I had to change the name because if I said the name of the song is Kimmy's theme, they would really look at me, you know? But, and so that is an illustration of engagement. Now, I'm going to conclude my message here today with a video, and some of you have seen this video clip. I used it once before, but I think it is very worthy of another look. The video is about a man. He's not found in the Bible. He lived about 150 years ago, and he fought in the Civil War on the side of the Union. The video was produced by Florentine Films and WETA-TV, a film by Ken Burns entitled The Civil War and was aired on PBS television. Before showing the video, I want to preview it with you a little bit. This, this section on, that I'm going to be showing is entitled Honorable 
manhood. This man was in Washington, D.C., in camp there, and he was anticipating impending battles. And so Sullivan Ballou writes home to his wife. And in his letter, he first mentions his confidence in the cause. Our cause is, of course, much, is infinitely more important. His cause was fighting for the Union cause. Our cause is making it into the kingdom of God for ourselves, witnessing and supporting the calling of other people. The second thing that he mentions is courage, the courage that he has to fight the battles that are before him. We need courage too. Sometimes it's it's not easy to confront those that are of other persuasions that ultimately we win. He goes on to talk about the debt that he owes to those that have gone before. And he's talking about the founding fathers of this country. But we likewise have a debt that we owe to those that have gone before, starting with Jesus, but also the writers of the, of the Bible, Paul in particular, who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, his devotion, his dedication. And it doesn't even have to go back that far. It can go back a decade ago to people that have been inspirational to you and have been your teachers, your personal teachers, that have now been laid to rest and are waiting for the call to resurrection. Then he goes into the sacrifice that he is willing to make for the cause, and I like the way he puts it. He says, I am willing to lay down all the joys of this life for the cause. That's a remarkable statement because this man was married with two children. He didn't have Medicare, he didn't have Medicaid, he didn't have Social Security. And he ends with a statement of unwavering faith in the resurrection. In watching the video, there's two scriptures that come to my mind. I'm not going to turn to him. John 15, 13, where Jesus says, Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. And in Ecclesiastes 7, 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. Now this video may cause a tear to glisten in your eye, but I encourage you to look at it joyfully, because this letter, this inspirational letter, extols and exemplifies the love values that God the Father and Jesus Christ will build in you. And with that, I will leave you this morning with the words and the story of Sullivan Ballou. A week before the Battle of Bull Run, Sullivan Ballou, a major in the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers, wrote home to his wife in Smithfield. July the 14th, 1861, Washington, D.C. Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow, 
And lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield. The memory of all the blissful moments I have enjoyed with you come crowding over me. And I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I've enjoyed them for so long and how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years. When God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and see our boys grown up to honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have sometimes been. But oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they love, I shall always be with you in the brightest day and the darkest night. Always. Always. When the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air, your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone, and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Sullivan Ballou was killed a week later at the first battle of Bull Run.